I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about a groundbreaking new report on the rise in right-wing extremism, and in particular, how it's tied to the United States military, we have with us Dr. Seth Jones, Senior Vice President at CSIS and Director of our International Security Program. Seth, welcome to Truth of the Matter. Andrew, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. So this new study that's out today and the Washington Post has done a major investigation based on your work. According to new data in your report, U.S. military personnel have participated in a growing number of domestic terror plots and attacks. The percentage of domestic terror incidents linked to military personnel rose to 6.4% in 2020, up from 1.5% in 2019 and zero in 2018. This is obviously troubling. What's going on here? Well, Andrew, thanks for the question. As you noted, what we're seeing is a rise in the number of and percentage of active duty and reserve personnel involved in terrorist plots and attacks in the United States. So as you noted, we've gone from zero in 2018 that crept up slightly to 1.5% in 2019 and then up to 6.4% in 2020. Now, this doesn't mean that 6.4% of all active duty or reservists are involved in attacks. It means that 6.4% of all attacks are committed by active duty and reservists. And if you add veterans, that number rises even higher. What's going on apparently is that there is an uptick in extremism within the military. And we're seeing that actually across the ideological spectrum. Some are motivated by white supremacist activity and and motivations. Others are motivated by different ideologies. The Boogaloo Boys, for example, have this desire to start a civil war in the United States and to overthrow the government. it's, It's not really on the far right or the far left on the spectrum. And then we've actually seen others, including anti fascists and anarchists that have been active duty reservists or even veterans involved in attacks. So so we're seeing it from across the political spectrum. The other thing I'd add, Andrew, is that we're also seeing, and this is concerning, and it actually shows that there's a double-edged sword here, is that extremists from all sides are increasingly targeting law enforcement and the military in attacks. We saw more targeting of the military and law enforcement in 2020 than we've seen in decades. So it's a very concerning trend. So they're they're both victims of attacks, and some of them are actually perpetrating these attacks. That's exactly right. Some are perpetrating, and that includes law enforcement as well. We've seen a rise in the number of law enforcement officials involved in terrorist attacks and plots, and also a rise in law enforcement being targeted by domestic extremists. If you think over the last year, the concern is 
For a while, it was anarchists and anti-fascists involved in targeting law enforcement. You could you could see that visually with the third precinct in Minneapolis burning and police cars in Minneapolis burning in 2020. But what we've also seen with incidents like the January 6th attack at the Capitol, as well as some of the Boogaloo Boys attacks, that they have increasingly targeted law enforcement and even the military. So it's very disturbing trend. It puts the military and law enforcement actually at the center of domestic extremism. You just said a second ago that this is coming from a wide array of ideologies. Where is most of it coming from? Well, what we see from the violent far left, for example, with anti-fascists, they believe that the police and to some extent the, the military are quintessential symbols of a repressive state including against minority populations. So that's why we've seen them target law enforcement and police. They've burned cars. They've tried to kill police officers. They've tried to burn police stations. But on the other hand, we also have seen, particularly by the end of 2020, some on the violent far right consider law enforcement the main security arm of a government they believe is illegitimate. So some of the chants that were heard at on the Capitol steps were traitors, traitors, traitors. The blue does not back you. And it's a big shift from what we saw in the summer of 2020, where there were a lot of talk about Blue Lives Matter. But once law enforcement were protecting government institutions from a government by the end of 2020 and into 2021, that they, they strongly pushed back against. They believed that it had been elected through illegitimate means. Then their rage turned on law enforcement and other security agencies. So the causation is pretty clear here. We're, we're, we're seeing it directly tied to anti-government on, on both sides. We saw in the 1970s and 80s an increase in violence and targeting of government entities and structures. And it culminated in the 1995 attack by Timothy McVeigh, also a veteran in Oklahoma City. That attack killed 168 people and injured more than 680 others. And so, I mean, one of the concerns with law enforcement and military is they've got greater than average training. They can conduct sniper attacks. They've got better shooting skills. They've got better communications, logistics, operational security. Many of them have been involved in small arms activity. So the fact that, that we've got these kinds of individuals involved in plotting raises a lot of serious questions. When we look at the 2020 plot against the Michigan governor by a militia in Michigan and had individuals from militias in other states, including Delaware. One of the individuals involved in paramilitary training had just retired from the military. And he's the one that provided a lot of the paramilitary training for that group that was plotting an attack against one and possibly two governors. That's that. That's the threat. So you're talking about people who have the, some of the best training in the entire world in military operations and tactics and strategy and they're applying it to really criminal activity. Yeah, that is what we're talking about. That's certainly the concern. Now, at this point, 
the number of fatalities, again, is low. I think the concern is with these kinds of individuals involved in plotting, there is a threat that the fatality levels start to increase like they did in the 80s and, and 1990s as individuals like Timothy McVeigh plotted much more serious attacks. The other thing that's that I think has been probably a, a good thing in, in many ways is we have seen a dramatic decline in plots and attacks by individuals that are inspired by Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, the, the Salafi jihadists. And I think what it, what it suggests, at least for the moment, is that that post 9-11 period where we were concerned after the attacks in New York City and Washington and the plane that went down in Pennsylvania, we have moved in into a new era where the threats are not coming from Salafi jihadist groups or networks. They're coming from individuals born and raised and radicalized in the U.S., everything from white supremacists to anti-government ideologies to anarchism. That's what we face. So this is another key finding in this report is that white supremacists and violent far-right extremists have perpetrated around 66% of domestic terror plots and attacks in recent years, but Salafi jihadists were involved in only 5% attacks in 2020. So why is such a large share of our counterterrorism resources still devoted to radical jihadists instead of combating white supremacist groups? Andrew, it's a good question. I've talked to a range of individuals at FBI headquarters, as well as the Joint Terrorism Task Forces that are set up across the United States to combat terrorism. Led by the FBI, they run sources, collect information against terrorist threats across the United States. What a number of individuals that we've spoken to have said is that they are in the process and have been for some time in shifting resources away from jihadist activity and towards domestic extremism. I mean, it's been a little slow and we've talked to individuals, including in the bureau from JTTFs across the, the country that have said, look, we've just moved too slowly on this. And what slowly means is think for a moment for the FBI and local law enforcement agencies to disrupt a plot and arrest individuals. They've got to have informants in organizations and pay those informants, usually. They have to have the signals intelligence. They have to, they have, to have FBI intelligence analysts or others involved in scouring the internet and extremist websites to identify individuals. It's particularly challenging because most domestic extremists aren't part of groups per se. They're doing this individually. And that's one thing that comes, comes out loud and clear from the attacks is we're not seeing groups conduct attacks in the U.S. We're seeing individuals. That adds another layer of complexity for the FBI and law enforcement agencies because it's a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack. They're not part of a group you've got to be able to have really good local intelligence to collect and have people or have agents identify those that are on the verge of conducting an attack. And I think the, the amount of resources are potentially significant, which is why it really needs to continue to shift towards these kinds of domestic extremists. Seth, back to the military for a second. I know that we've made the DOD aware of the findings in this report, and of course, they're doing their own internal review. What are they 
going to do about this disturbing trend? Well, the Department of Defense has already started down this road in dealing with extremism. In March 2021, the Department of Defense sent a report to the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, which acknowledged that the department is facing a threat from domestic extremists. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin pledged to intensify the department's efforts to combat extremism in the military. He asked organizations to to conduct a stand down to discuss extremism in the ranks with their own personnel. In January of 2021, the Department of Defense also launched an investigation to determine the extent to which the department and the military have implemented policies and procedures that prohibit advocacy and participation related to white supremacy, extremism, criminal gang activity by active duty personnel. But clearly, there needs to be more that occurs over the next couple of years. I mean, the department has been moving, I think, reasonably well along these lines. The SF-86, the form which the Department of Defense uses as part of its security clearances, I think is evolving to try to pick up individuals involved in domestic extremism activity. So there, there are steps that, that I think the department has to take place. I think education on signs that an individual is involved in extremist activity, identification of different types of tattoos or language that people are speaking. I mean, these are things that help educate. There's also another part, Andrew, which is the Department of Defense is also a target of extremism. So I think part of the effort has to be to also continue to try to protect military installations, recruiting centers that may be vulnerable to an attack by domestic extremists. The problem, and we can talk about this in a moment, the bigger problem may actually be the police because there is no national police service like the military. And there it may be a little harder to make progress. Now, I have to ask, Seth, but is there any evidence of interference by foreign actors that are trying to stoke this up, you know, Russia, any of our other enemies trying to foment this kind of extremism within the United States? Andrew, there are some indications and in, in our interviews with U.S. intelligence personnel, both in organizations like the National Counterterrorism Center, the FBI, but also some of the local joint terrorism task forces, they've indicated that the Russians have not been helpful along these lines. They have been involved in pushing out propaganda that supports extremist ideologies on the internet. This has been through bots, through robots, as well as through individuals, through trolls, where they have found ways and opportunities, again, to really try to expand the reach of these extremist ideologies to targeted individuals that may be vulnerable to them. What, what we've also seen them do is attempt to target active duty personnel, reservists, veterans, and police directly through cyber and disinformation campaigns on digital platforms and get them and encourage recruitment into extremist organizations. So we've seen the, the Russians active on pushing out propaganda as well as trying to direct security officials in the U.S. towards extremist groups. Obviously, uh, not not very helpful steps. Right. So, so given all this, 
especially in the law enforcement where, you know, it, it's really hard because it's so decentralized. What are some of the steps that we can be thinking about taking from a policy standpoint to start to address this? From a policy standpoint, there are organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the Police Executive Research Forum, which I think need to step up their efforts to better understand and counter extremism within police forces. There should also be a focus on veterans and individuals exiting the services, including police which are at increased risk of recruitment. Is there education about the kinds of organizations that may reach out and recruit? And again, there's a difference here between individuals that are engaged in First Amendment activity, free speech, and veering into extremism. And again, what we're talking about in this report is not freedom of speech issues. We're dealing with terrorism. And and I think that's the important issue to understand. People are obviously, whether they're law enforcement, whether they're active duty, reservists, veterans, former law enforcement, are able in this country and protected to provide their views in a range of areas. But when they're involved in the deliberate use or threat of violence to achieve political goals and to create a broad psychological impact, that's terrorism. And it's that violent component that we're we're really focused on. So I think the exit strategies, exit interviews, training for individuals, leaving those kinds of jobs, military, law enforcement types of jobs is is particularly important. What about the, 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 on the front end, what about the vetting going into the military, vetting going into law enforcement, are there steps that are being taken and that can be taken to prevent potential extremists from joining the ranks? Yeah, Andrew, the SF-86 process, which I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I think there need to continue to be revisions that help identify individuals associated with extremist networks. And and it's not just these changes, but also I, I think the military and law enforcement need to make it clear that they are stepping up efforts to identify extremists that are involved in trying to get into law enforcement or military jobs. There's an interesting data point from an FBI database of lone offender terrorism, and it looked at lone offenders in the U.S. between 1972 and 2015, and it noted that 10% of offenders took steps to join the military, but they were either disqualified during the application process or they dropped out after realizing that they might not meet the qualifications. So deterrence is actually quite important. If people realize there is a much more significant spotlight on extremists attempting to get into law enforcement or the military, they are more likely, this data shows, to not apply in the first place. So these deterrent steps, I think, are also important in vetting people and discouraging them from even applying in the first place. Seth, what can the military and law enforcement do to make themselves less of a target of these groups and individuals? Well, Andrew, I think the the military and law enforcement can do a couple of things. One is they can harden uh, potential targets. And that is, that may be barriers, Uh, defense in depth against police stations, against military bases, recruiting centers. 
particularly with threats against those locations. So, you know, it may not have to do it against every base installation and police station, but ones where there's a higher threat of attack. And we've seen threats in cities like Seattle or Portland, Oregon, or Minneapolis. Another thing is to continue to focus on proactive intelligence collection. And that really means that the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, law enforcement, and the FBI need to continue to develop really community efforts to identify extremists before they conduct attacks as they're plotting. And we've we've seen good example of, the, of this over the last 20 years in the arrest of Najibullah Zazi for plotting attacks against New York City subways. I mean, he was identified, arrested before the attack occurred. That's a really good example on the jihadist side of doing that. And I think when, when you look, for example, at the plots against the governor of, of Michigan and also potentially the governor of Virginia, that plot was thwarted by two FBI informants into networks that were involved in plotting the attacks, individuals that were connected to the Wolverine Watchmen in Michigan. So those kinds of activities, the signals intelligence, human intelligence collection is important. Andrew, there's one last element of this that I also wanted to highlight, and that is unlike some countries, say the United Kingdom or Germany, there is very little public discussion, public data that's available about extremism in the United States. I mean, the U.S. government really does a terrible job of collecting and pushing out information, data on the threat, who's involved in perpetrating or plotting attacks? Does the data show an increase or a decrease? I think there needs to be a much better effort by the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, Department of Justice, and even the Department of Defense to better publicize and be transparent about data that goes to these kinds of threats because there's too much opaqueness right now, and there's too little transparency. So that's, that's one of the reasons we did the report is to try to get more data and information out there rather than, you know, rather than have to rely on guesses about, about the nature of the threat. How were you able to assemble the data that went into this? Because some of the findings you have in this are really interesting. You know, you have the number of, of domestic terror attacks and plots in 2020 was at its highest since you know 1994, but that fatalities were low, only five people were killed in 110 incidents of domestic terror. And then you have some really interesting reasons for this. One of the reasons is that in this data that you've examined, it might be because of what you just said, that efforts by the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to prevent attacks before they occur. So how were you able to assemble this data when it's not so readily available? Well, Andrew, what, what we did is we, we built a data set and we published various iterations of this over the last couple of years. The current version goes from January 1st, 1994 to January 31st, 2021. It's got 900 cases of terrorist plots and attacks in the U.S. between that time period. It includes a whole range of categories, the incident date, the perpetrator, location, motivation, the number of individuals wounded or killed, the target, weapons used, and, and others, lots of others. And we've had a range of coders at CSIS that have coded the data. 
we added for the most recent iteration, we added categories on whether there were military involved, active duty, reservists, veterans. We also added whether there were law enforcement, current or former law enforcement involved. And then, and I think this is an important step, like with other reports that we've done along these lines, we gave the data set and, and our drafts of the report to a panel of experts. So we gave it to individuals like Bruce Hoffman at Georgetown or Cynthia Miller Idris at the American University, Colin Clark at the Sufon Center and others to review the document, review the data. We gave it to a number of others and then we made changes. We, we gave it to the Washington Post. They looked carefully through the data set. They came back to us with, a, all of these individuals did with a range of questions. We made changes based on that. We added some incidents, we took out others. So, so think of this as like a living, breathing document. And it's that valuation from outside reviewers that I think was really important in honing the accuracy of this. So, I mean, I think those are the, that, that's really the way we built this and we vetted it. This report is going to make some waves because it's the first report of its kind that really puts numbers on veterans and, and people associated with the military being involved in extremist attacks. What do you expect the result of this is going to be? Well, Andrew, as we've already talked about, there is, I think, awareness, particularly within the military, that extremism is a growing challenge. I think this will start to accelerate efforts within the military to deal with the challenge. I expect we'll also see more interest among members of the House and Senate to push the Department of Defense, the FBI, Department of Justice, police agencies to get more transparency in the nature of the problem. How serious is it? How do we know that? What kind of data do we have? What steps are you taking to deal with it? And the January 6th incident at the U.S. Capitol was in many ways a moment where, partly because of the involvement of some current and particularly former law enforcement and military, it was a moment where I think people recognized that, look, this is a problem. But the data, when you start looking at, at other incidents, shows that this is not just about one event. This is not about January 6th. This is part of a broader pattern. Andrew, what I hope doesn't happen, though, is that this becomes very political, because I think it's easy to walk down a road where Republicans and Democrats start to politicize this issue. I think the data, and we've, you know, we've we've made this objective. The data, this is not about Republicans, it's not about Democrats, it's not about conservatives or liberals. This is about extremists. And no one should support extremist activity, particularly individuals that are illegally plotting violent attacks against the U.S. government, against law enforcement, and against others. So what I hope it doesn't do is sort of encourage more political polarization in response to it. There should actually be more bipartisan activity, not less. Right. I mean, the danger here is, is that this, you know, 
becomes a discussion about January 6th alone and pointing fingers at who did what and whether it's Antifa or the Boogaloo Boys or Proud Boys or something like that instead of, you know, what you just said. This is calling it what it is. Extremism is extremism. And we've got to come at the root causes and, and find a way to thwart it. And I think when you look, Andrew, at the plotting of attacks against law enforcement and the military, I think what people have to recognize is they've been both perpetrators as well as victims of extremism. And that when you look at this, their involvement in some domestic terrorism, but also their the reality that they've been victims, this involves people from all over the ideological spectrum, from white supremacists and anti-government militias to anarchists and anti-fascists. So I, we really have to get beyond you know, conservatives, liberals, Republicans, Democrats, and recognize that this is a big problem. The other thing that the data indicates is it's not about certain areas of the country, Pacific Northwest, West Coast of the U.S. We're seeing plots and attacks everywhere, eastern seaboard, the south, the Midwest, the west, the Pacific Northwest, everywhere in the United States, Every, you know, virtually every state we're seeing plots and attacks. It's a, it's a national problem. Seth, this is a really important report. And thank you for helping us to get to the truth of the matter about this extremely challenging issue and something that we're going to be watching very closely through your work at CSIS for quite some time. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 